I'm uh, Ryan Pryor. I'm a multimedia journalist and a social entrepreneur and an advocate for chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm very interested in chronic fatigue syndrome because I deal with a lot of really severe chronic fatigue and no one has answers for me. Hey there, and welcome to In Sickness and In Health, a podcast about our relationships with our bodies and issues at the intersections with chronic illness, disability, healthcare, and mortality. My name is Kara Gale. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional. I'm just a person and a patient and, I guess, a podcaster who really wants to talk about this stuff more. Nothing said on this show should ever be considered medical advice. If you're experiencing a medical issue, please seek qualified medical help. I know the system sucks, but I wish you a lot of luck. Every person is different, even within disease groups, so none of my guests should ever be regarded as official representatives or spokespersons for their conditions. Please respect their very personal choices, and unless they ask for it, please don't make suggestions about treatments or lifestyle changes. Unsolicited medical advice is never not annoying. In this episode, I talked to Ryan Pryor, co-director and producer of Forgotten Plague, a documentary about ME-CFS, or Myalgic Encephalomyelitis Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. This conversation was recorded at the 2016 Stanford Medicine X conference in September, where Ryan and I were both e-patient delegates on the Storyteller track. And you can check out our Storyteller track projects in the show notes for this episode. We ran into each other in the MedX studio tent, and I made him hold the microphone because my arm was tired. It's weird how much that changes the dynamic of an interview, and he actually wound up interviewing me a bit. We chatted about ME-CFS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, how those two patient populations overlap, and some of the performative aspects of being a patient. I talked about living with and trying to manage POTS, quality of life, and try to answer the question posed by the Medex studio space of how to foster disruptive co-creation in healthcare. I decided to put this episode out now since October is Dysautonomia Awareness Month. If you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you might have heard the Dysautonomia series that we launched the show with last year. If not, go back and take a listen. I mean, you don't have to stop this episode and go do that. You can do it later. But I talked to five POTS patients with different primary diagnoses about their experiences living with this form of dysautonomia. I recorded episode one with Lauren Stiles, president of Dysautonomia International. She gave us a crash course in just what dysautonomia is and some of the fundraising and research grants that Dysautonomia International has been able to provide in this highly neglected field. Ryan and I got to talking because I was explaining to him that my own almost decade-long struggle with pretty severe chronic fatigue has me very interested in ME-CFS. Both ME-CFS and one of my diagnoses, POTS, share the common features of orthostatic intolerance and chronic fatigue. Orthostatic intolerance is, put simply, an increase in symptoms that comes on with assuming an upright position, so sitting or standing up, and are relieved upon recumbency, or laying down. It's associated with various forms of dysautonomia, like POTS, and is a key finding in ME-CFS. 
One of the other distinctive characteristics of MECFS is post-exertional fatigue or malaise. This is one of the things that makes the fatigue associated with the condition so much more than the generalized fatigue that comes with so many other chronic conditions. Many patients experience setbacks as the result of even really limited exertion, sometimes permanently. I experienced this. I had to quit physical therapy because of it. I know it is for real. It's totally unlike the generalized fatigue that I had for most of my life from some of my other chronic conditions until I got a weird viral illness that changed everything in 2007. I've had doctors bill with the diagnosis code for CFS just to get treatments covered, but I don't actually have it, which is fine, really. I don't need another poorly understood, often doubted, complex chronic condition on my medical records, which at this point read more like an ICD rap sheet than anything else. But so many of my other symptoms have their own diagnoses, and it's impossible to tell where one ends and the other begins, and if they're just all a part of a single continuum or discrete diagnoses. I guess it doesn't really matter, except that it does, because chronic fatigue is not taken seriously, and it is my biggest problem. If you're wondering how either of us managed to make it to MedEx despite living with such fatigue and post-exertional malaise, I will tell you that it was not easy. I'm still recovering and have spent most of the last month in bed. Uh, Part of the reason that I was able to go at all was because I knew I would be able to spend this time that I needed to recover. I also had to fly in a few days early and fly out several days after the conference ended so I could recover. I had no idea going into it whether it would work, but it did, uh, for the most part. (laughs) There are still plenty more people with both of our conditions who could not even consider doing something like this due to their symptom burden. You can see what kind of devastation MECFS wreaks on the lives of those that live with it in Ryan's documentary, Forgotten Plague. The film also goes into issues with the condition's name, social stigma, and some of the reasons that it doesn't get the attention and research funding that it should. You can also hear Ryan on an episode of In Sickness and in Health, Episode 7 guest Christopher Snyder's podcast, Just Talking. They talk more about the medic's experience and MECFS, and I'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. It's been a while since I put out a regular episode, and I've missed you all. My apologies for my long absence. I took the summer to let my brain rest, and obviously I've been recovering from MedEx. Um, but I'm ramping up production on the podcast again, and so there should be some more new episodes coming. I started the podcast last year with weekly episodes and then switched to an every other week schedule because it turns out single-handedly producing a weekly show is totally unsustainable. Who would have thought? Uh, Future episodes might be even less regular. Uh, I'm just going to put them out as I'm able to produce them, and I'm not sure what that might look like like schedule-wise because I am still feeling pretty crappy. But something is better than nothing, right? (laughs) If you're listening to this episode the week that it comes out, we'll actually be celebrating our first birthday next week, which is super exciting. Even though I wasn't able to actually produce episodes all the way through the year, I'm still really proud of what I've accomplished with the show so far, given what I deal with health-wise. So I am going to celebrate somehow. I'm not sure how. We'll see. 
Thanks to my patrons over on Patreon for supporting the show on an ongoing basis. Stanford R, Laura, Katie, and Yarrow. Patreon enables me to accept small recurring donations on a per-episode basis to help with the production costs of the podcast. If you haven't yet, check us out over on Patreon link in the show notes. Uh, There are different pledge levels that come with different rewards, and patrons who support the podcast also get access to the patron-only feed, on which I will be sharing some more behind-the-scenes stuff at sneak peeks at new episodes. Check out insicknesspod.com slash donate for links to our Patreon and PayPal pages, including a video in which I describe exactly how Patreon works. Don't worry if you can't donate. The chronic life is expensive, and trust me, I totally understand that. You can also help out by taking a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or the Google Play Store, wherever you get your episodes. It helps other people find the show. Check out the episode page on insignispod.com for links to some of the stuff that we talk about in this episode and find resources and more from us there. And as always, you can find us on social media at insignispod. Find Ryan and his work online at rtprior.com. That's r-t-p-r-i-o-r.com. His documentary, Forgotten Plague, is available on Amazon Prime, iTunes, Google Play, and DVD. Amazon Prime members can stream the documentary for free, and foreign audiences can find it on iTunes, where it is now available in seven languages. Get the DVDs at Amazon.com or at ForgottenPlague.com. I just uh, wanted to make a note before getting into this episode about some language that I used when we were talking about the performative aspects of being a patient. Uh, How I talk about it has way more to do with the perception of patients than what patients actually have to deal with to get adequate pain and symptom management. Ryan asked me how I avoid looking like a drug seeker, and I replied that I have made the conscious decision not to seek drugs. But not everybody has that choice, and the term drug seeker is uh, pretty loaded, I guess I would say. To hear more about what chronic pain patients face in seeking treatment for severe chronic pain in the current climate around pain medication, take a listen to our episode 22 with Jen. She talked about needing regular opioid pain medication at a time when those medications are kind of public enemy number one. We discussed why she needs access to this medication, which, spoiler alert, it might have something to do with having her pelvis sawed in half twice. Uh, We talked about how we deal with drugs here in the U.S. and how that has created a climate in which we can't really have open and honest conversations about drug use and how challenging it can be to really treat chronic pain. In that episode, we also discussed the important distinctions between addiction, abuse, and dependence, and the many trade-offs and compromises that we often have to make in treating chronic health conditions. For a taste of this issue from MedEx, check out the Herp Blogger's post about her experience as a token patient on one of the conference panels about the opioid epidemic. Uh, She was also on Chris Snyder's Just Talking podcast, kind of debriefing about the experience, and I'll include a link to that on the episode page as well. Uh, So I hope you enjoyed this episode.
I technically meet the diagnostic criteria, except for the one that's like, unless it can be explained by another cause. I have another cause that kind of explains it. What's your other cause? Uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is often associated with chronic fatigue syndrome as well. So, yeah, po- yeah, POTS is um, very similar and you know very frustrating, and lots of people that I know have that, and then. Yeah, it's very stupid if you have if you have that diagnosis and then you get excluded from what might be your actual primary diagnosis. Right. In my case, I have a primary diagnosis, but like I have so many secondary diagnoses that it kind of makes the primary diagnosis like not even really like my worst issue, which confuses a lot of doctors. Yeah, so my uh, foundation that I run, we, we're really interested in, our, our vision is to kind of create a world in which all medical students are, are being educated about MECFS, and so right now only about 5% of U.S. medical students are educated about it, so I'm going to be going to as many of the education panels as possible, and particularly when people give talks or panels about how they've changed the medical school curriculum in a certain category, uh, I'll be going and hearing about that, and then probably uh, picking the brain of people afterwards and kind of getting some uh, ideas on how, how we should uh, change uh, what we're doing. Well, right now we have a, a fellowship program and we've, we've changed th- through doing this fellowship program with a, f- a few medical students at Nova Southeast Nova Southeastern University. We changed the curriculum in, in that one medical school, but we want to try to do that in every school. Yeah. So uh, they don't teach chronic fatigue syndrome very well, if at all, in medical right. school. Um, what kind of resistance or ignorance have you run into with doctors that you've seen yourself? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of it comes down to the fact that it's, it's hard to diagnose. And so um, and it, it's kind of most people who do know at least something about it think about it as a diagnosis of exclusion. I mean, most doctors who know about it think of it as a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to exclude every other disease before you actually give it this diagnosis when it, in reality it, um, it should be like any other disease that you diagnose it with a simple blood test or a simple MRI or CAT scan. Uh, plenty of evidence in the medical literature about what, what a CFS brain looks like. Uh, plenty of different immunological markers of what a CFS blood looks like. Um, and so all those things need to be um, kind of operationalized and mainstreamed so that uh, a- any doctor's office can perform those tests. And probably more importantly, interpret those tests to know like what the, what the key signature of the disease looks like. Um, and uh, I think the literature is there and the research is there. It's just a matter of, um, and many of the government committees and, and such have recommended that some of these things be put in practice, but it just hasn't quite happened yet. So that's kind of uh, a lot of where we are with the advocacy community. And so our, our foundation, the Blueprint Foundation, um, kind of helps put those into practice. Cool. Uh, did you have a hard time getting diagnosed? It took me six months, which was seemed very hard at the time, but from people who I've interviewed, um, it's very extremely fast. And three, five, or ten years would be uh, not at all uh, surprising when I interview people. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, after I probably interviewed over 100 patients on film, and I've you know talked to several hundred and read, read the stories of several thousand, and... Uh, yeah, most people they write letters to us and they'll say, "Dear, dear Ryan or dear Forgotten Plague team, my name is so and so. I've been sick for 25 years and I was diagnosed in 1989 and I've been disabled ever since." Mm-hmm. And so they, yeah, those are the kind of the basic. Uh, do you see 
any disparity in uh, diagnosis time? Like, obviously, you haven't done any formalized study of this, but do you see, when you talk to patients, any disparity between the genders as far as di- time to diagnosis? Yeah, the, the there is a belief that um, women... I, mean, I think it is true that women get this more commonly than men, and that does play into some role. So, like, I was a 17-year-old male athlete, and so there's a reluctance on the part of the doctors to diagnose it because they, they think of it as something that's something that middle-aged women get. Uh, I've interviewed tons of, you know, m- many young young male athletes and bodybuilders and army people, and um, so that, that is not a, a true thing to say that, you know, middle-aged women are the... I mean, maybe maybe they get it more often than other people, but there's uh, no shortage of you know, young men who um, also get it. Right. Now, um, I believe this is also true of chronic fatigue syndrome with POTS. A lot of uh, physicians believe that it is simply the result of deconditioning. Did you get that sort of pushback from your doctors? Yeah, I was an active athlete, and I was I was probably more in the category of wor- working out way too much, and so I couldn't have been deconditioned. But there is a um, – I personally didn't get that, but it's like half the time I'm telling my story, half the time I'm telling the stories of hundreds or other you know, thousands of people that I'm aware of. But uh, there's a common trend in the um, stories that we hear that people are, um, yeah, that it's a combination of depression and deconditioning. And so how do you, you know, and then there's a belief that if they're deconditioned and depressed that they should be doing this graded exercise therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy to fix it. And um, cognitive behavioral therapy is may be helpful for certain, some small portion of, of the illness, but uh, integrated exercise therapy, I would say, is completely counterproductive, and it probably harms of, you know, dramatically more people than it helps with this, with GFS. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? I would agree. Well, with POTS, it's a little bit different because people have POTS for a variety of different reasons. You know, so I have POTS because of a genetic disorder that's like never, like no amount of exercising is going to uh, make me feel better. Well, that I would not. Uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is that um, it, like there's some evidence that uh, when you have the onset of POTS is pretty significant to your prognosis. Um, it seems that if it comes on during your teen years, uh, a certain amount of those people actually do have resolution of their symptoms in adulthood. Uh, for those of us who have had symptoms our whole life or it comes on at a different point, um, that does not seem to be the case, uh, but we still need a lot more research for that. I forget why I was saying that. Oh, I'm curious <laughs> that, um, especially for people who don't really understand what POTS is, I'm, I'm, and I'm also curious that um, I, I had a friend, for instance, that she couldn't really stand up for more than about five minutes before yeah. she would faint. And so it would be in situations where she would be trying to do something social, she'd get really excited, she'd see somebody she wanted to talk to, <laughs> go, go run over and talk to them, and then 
get in a great conversation and within five minutes you might faint. Has, yeah. it, has that been something that you've experienced? Um, I am fortunate. Actually, the majority of POTS patients don't faint. That is uh, a, a misconception uh, that a lot of doctors even have. And I know people that have been told, oh, if you've never fainted, then you can't possibly have POTS. Um, and that's just not true. Generally, the only times that I actually experience full syncope, which is like a full fainting episode, is if I have an infection. So if I have the flu or a cold or something, one of the first signs that I'm what I call regular people sick on top of my chronic illness um, is if I faint or have like a really near fainting episode. So most of what I experience is pre-syncope. If I'm standing up for five minutes or so, then I'll start to get like things will start to get kind of gray and I'll get like cotton ball brain, what I call it. Um, and I get enough of a warning that I can sit down. Uh, plenty of POTS patients actually have multiple forms of dysautonomia um, and POTS is a form of dysautonomia. So I have POTS and inappropriate sinus tachycardia. So I'm getting off on a tangent. Um, some people also have neurocardiogenic syncope, which is another form of dysautonomia. And that's where the fainting often comes from. They have an overlap of those two syndromes. So what's the best way for you to manage it or to you know, treat it or yeah. any hope of actually curing it? Uh, not at the moment. Like I said, you know, it depends. Some people do have a full resolution of symptoms. I don't, I've had this my whole life and I know it's really not going away. So I don't, I'm not, you know, holding out hope for a cure. Um, so everyone is different. Like I said, people have POTS for different reasons. So generally speaking, if you, if the underlying cause is something that's treatable, you want to treat the underlying cause. Because then, you know, um, so for example, uh, uh, some portion of POTS patients have it because they have primary Sjogren's, which is an autoimmune disorder. So if that is treated and treated effectively, that uh, some patients actually experience a resolution of or at least an improvement of their symptoms. Um, in general, though, that we, there's no FDA-approved treatment specifically for POTS. So it's a lot of off-label prescribing. Um the first recommendations that we get are increased sodium and fluids to augment the blood volume, retain more fluid, um, which is helpful, but it's certainly not a, not a cure. Uh, compression stockings, I'm wearing waist-high compression stockings today, that also can help. Um, and then medication-wise, it's usually some combination of beta blockers for the tachycardia, although that can also cause problems with the blood pressure. Um, and then other things like... Mitadrin, which I forget what that is actually used for specifically, um, but that I guess causes peripheral vasoconstriction, so there's not as much blood pooling. Also, mestinon, which is generally uh, prescribed for an autoimmune disease called myasthenia gravis that affects the muscles. Um, and sometimes SSRIs, although every time I've been on an SSRI, it has uh, ended very poorly for me in my POTS. Uh, that's another, actually, thing that makes me pass out is if I'm on an SSRI. Um, but some people do well on them. So it's a lot of trial and error, um, which can be really frustrating. And um, it's another condition that kind of exists outside of anyone's specific specialty. Um, obviously, the tachycardia is the measurable, the thing that's measurable and the, the diagnostic handle for that uh, syndrome, but it's so much more than just your heart rate. And so because it's that uh, tachycardia, 
a lot of doctors think like, oh, this is a cardiac issue, but really it's more of a neurological issue. It's an issue with an autonomic nervous system. Um, but there are autonomic neurologists are very few and far between. Um, I mean, I live 30 minutes north of New York City and I can't really find a doctor. Uh, so it's frustrating because kind of no one wants to take responsibility for us. We're very complicated patients. Um, and uh, it's just, yeah, it's frustrating <laughs> because I'm not getting enough blood to my brain most of the time and it makes me feel stupid right now. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I was just remembering when I, uh, one of the people that we interviewed, one of the doctors that we interviewed for um, our film and was treating a lot of people with CFS, which was, you know, treating a lot of people with POTS. And one of the things that she, she had these chairs in the, in the back and there was like kind of like lazy boy chairs where you had like a, a footrest that could, the footrest would pop up. Yeah. And she talked about how she would be talking to patients um, who were sitting in a regular chair and they would their, their brain fog would come in and after very, very fast. And she said that if you just simply gave the person Gatorade, which helped with the electrolytes, helped with the blood volume, and then it also put their legs up and uh, on, the, on the footrest, she could increase the amount of attention that the patient had in the, in the actual appointment by, you could extend the appointment 30 minutes and you could actually get a lot more done with the, with the people. Yeah, so there's a doctor at New York Medical College named Julian Stewart uh, who has done a lot of uh, the research on POTS. He's one of, you know, a, the very few research teams that are actually looking at this and he's looked at cerebral uh, perfusion, so the amount of blood that actually is getting to the brains of POTS patients and found that patients in the study um, did experience cerebral hypoperfusion after a certain period of time on a tilt table test. So that's where they strap you to a table and they tilt you upwards. And that's generally what's used to diagnose POTS, but it's also used in a lot of the studies because it's a kind of controllable way to induce the symptoms. So what he's uh, done is actually taken um, ultrasounds, like cranial ultrasounds of the patients and measured the amount of brain uh, blood that's getting to their brain and found that while tilted upright, POTS patients generally aren't getting as much blood to their brain. So that does explain, you know, the brain fog and the fatigue and the cotton ball brain. Um, and definitely I can tell, like the way that a lot of people with diabetes can tell if their blood sugar is low, I can tell it feels very similar to having low blood sugar. So I will either eat salty snack or pour some salt in my mouth and then chug a bunch of water, which is always really weird uh, to do in public. But um, it's definitely like you can feel the difference. It's not, you're not going to have a resolution of those symptoms, um, but it can definitely make a difference for sure. So if you were a bagel, would you be a salty bagel? Is that kind of where yeah. we <laughs> where we started off? Yeah, exactly. Um, or, or do you wish you were a salty bagel, but you're not? I think I am a salty bagel. <laughs> I am. I, I mean, salty in, in the way that I'm like kind of cranky a lot. Okay. Uh, but then also I, I do, my salt needs are, are kind of ridiculous. And, and when you say cotton ball brain, what does that mean? Is that the same thing as brain fog? But um, I've never heard people use that term before. Yeah, it's uh, something. It's my own term. It's not. A, it's not. A, it's not a clinical term. Um, the way that I can describe it is just. <laughs> the way that I can describe it is. Uh, 
It's more of a physical feeling than brain fog is. I mean, brain fog can be very physical feeling, but it's more of the cognitive effects that you're experiencing, whereas cotton ball brain just feels like I have cotton balls instead of a brain. It's all kind of like dried out and weird. I don't know. It's so hard to explain. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, and so you, you said you're a full-time patient now. Do you, do you think, do you plan to have a specific career in the long run where podcasting could be that career? Maybe. I mean, right now, actually, I am in the process of uh, appealing my disability claim, which has been a delight, uh, <laughs> or the exact opposite. How many times have you applied for disability? Just once, and I only just uh, filed my appeal. So I've gotten, I've filed once, I've gotten one rejection, and I've filed an appeal, and I'm waiting to hear on that decision. Who knows? Um, I would love, I, I am not... I'm hoping that, like, I don't have to be on disability for the rest of my life. I would love more than anything to work. I would love to. Uh, there's so many. I had to t put the podcast on hiatus because I was just dealing with more health stuff and wasn't able to make the show that I wanted to make. Um, and there's so much more that I want to do with it. And there's so many other things that are so cool that I want to do. So I am hoping that at some point I find the right combination of medications and lifestyle changes and whatever that will enable me to work again. Um, I, but at this point, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. So I just... Uh, I'm just hanging in there. Do you think the disability uh, request that you sent will, will get eventually um, uh, approved? And do you have other people that you know with POTS who've you know filed similar requests and have gotten them to work or have not gotten them to work? Um, I mean, POTS is difficult because it's not one of the blue book conditions. You know, they have a certain number of conditions that like, it's like, oh, you have this. So, of course, you get disability. Um, and it is not a rare condition, but it is rarely diagnosed. So a lot of, I imagine that a lot of people who are looking at my case and reviewing my case are not familiar with it. And that's frustrating. Um, I do know POTS patients that have filed successful claims. Um, I don't know if mine will be successful. I, I'm not particularly hopeful about it. Um, it shouldn't be the case, but I always have to do this kind of like song and dance of I'm not a drug seeker and I'm a very engaged patient and I really know a lot and I know my body and you should probably listen to me when I tell you things because uh, I live here uh, you know so how, how do you how do you prove that you're not a drug seeker when you go into an office I know that you know for instance when I was doing it you know I we would go in and my dad was in the military at the time and he, oftentimes he wore his military uniform, you know, and, and then my mom was there also. And then I would always come in and, and uh, wear a tie sometimes. And my mom was a nurse. And so she understood the medical system backwards and forwards. And so she could, you know, sort of call out any doctor on any, anything they had and any, any sort of you know, back talk. I mean, I don't want to say the back talk from the doctors, you know, how dare they? But, yeah. Yeah, but in, any sort of like doubts the doctors had, uh, I had a, a parent who was a nurse and a parent who was a officer, military officer and another one who, and then me kind of, you know, sometimes I was, you know, wearing a suit almost just to kind of prove that we were not there, like, you know, messing around. Right. Yeah. It's really frustrating. There's this whole performative as aspect of being a patient 
Um, I mean, for me, I've made the choice not to seek drugs, uh, even if, you know, I like, so, okay, opioids are this huge issue right now. Um, I, I might benefit from uh, judicious use of opioids uh, on my really bad pain days. It would really help if I had, you know, something to take. Uh, but I've decided, like, just not even to bring it up with my doctors because it's not worth the energy that I'll have to spend first convincing them that that might be of a, a benefit to me. Then the energy that's required to go back every month and get your prescription and then bring it to the pharmacy and deal with people at the pharmacy thinking that you're a drug seeker. So I've stayed away from opioids. Um, so that helps. But then, you know, there's just all of these assumptions that doctors have about patients that we're lying to them. And some people do. But um, for me, I have to, I mean, I go in with uh, notes every single time. Uh, just so that I don't forget what I'm talking about, as I am often wanting to do. Um, right, and yeah. having the notes. Yeah. Right, yeah, that definitely helps. But then also the fact that I know my shit helps a lot too. Uh, but it takes a while for them to accept that I also have knowledge um, and insight. And that just because I don't have a bunch of acronyms after my name doesn't mean that I looked something up on Google for 10 minutes and decided that this is just what I have. Um, this has gotten dramatically easier now that I have actual diagnoses. I was seeing doctors for 20 years who were telling me that I was crazy. Um, the fact that I have diagnoses and I have medical records and I can be like, look at this paper. This other person with acronyms after their name said I have this, so you have to believe me. Um, so that helps. Um, and just going in and having a goal for each, each um, what are those things called, appointment, uh, that helps. You know, just having the illusion that I have my shit together, really, um, which is annoying because I am a sick person and I don't necessarily have my shit together always. And I, you know, I most recently have been dealing with a lot of chronic migraines, which limits my cognitive ability and my ability to pretend I, that I have my shit together and like be nice and friendly and, you know, whatever. And I had to go see a new neurologist in the process to like deal with this. So that was, it's always really nerve wracking to me going into any doctor's appointment, but especially new ones. So it's just a matter of controlling for all of the factors that I can and then hoping for the best as far as like the other factors that I don't have control over. And I'm just thinking like a lot of the patients I know in the, in the you know, in my community, and I assume this is exactly with every other disease community is that, you know, everyone's hyper literate in reading the medical literature and they, they know like who who is the co-author on which particular studies and how was the patient cohort designed and what were the you know the methodologies used in the particular study and they'll call out certain universities who don't design good studies and they know that discount certain studies and they can bring in the right studies to the their particular doctor's visits and um, there's. I kind of feel as though, like, if you just have like a simple, like, like a high school education, you're you're almost capable of um, understanding most things that are published in medical journals, and and there it's much less of a esoteric um, field that a lot of people realize. Well, they doctors like to maintain that that air of of mysteriousness, 
you know, and, and uh, it's something that I really struggle with um, because it's like, okay, I guess we have to do this your way, you know, and kind of like a lot of doctors like don't have an understanding of how studies are designed and just and and how small a lot of the sample sizes are and it really is surprising to me sometimes where I'll be like uh actually and then they'll be like I had no idea about that I saw a GI doctor last year for um some mild gastroparesis symptoms that I was having and she told me that I couldn't possibly be having those because I didn't have diabetes but according to the American College of Gastroenterology only 20% of people with gastroparesis have gastroparesis because of diabetes um I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a connective tissue disorder and anything that you read about gastroparesis is like uh, causes are diabetes, some other things, and connective tissue disorders, you know. So, like, the, and there are studies in the EDS community and in the POTS community, um, although there is a lot of overlap there, but in those two separate groups of people, um, that rates of gastroparesis are higher than the general population. And, and where did she get that information? That Was that something that she learned in medical school, like, so. a decades ago that wasn't accurate anymore? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, and that's been really frustrating, too. EDS is taught, if they teach it at all, it's 10 minutes in a pathology class at some point. Um, you know, they say... This is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Here's all the types. Here's a bunch of symptoms, but we're not going to break it out by type for you. Uh, and here are a bunch of pictures that are really extreme examples of the physical manifestations. Um, so what I hear from EDS patients all the time is I went to the doctor and asked them about EDS, and they told me that I couldn't possibly have it because I don't have stretchy skin or I don't have blue sclera in my eyes or I don't have this or I don't have that. But different types of EDS have different symptoms that correlate to them. And doctors are not educated on it at all, and it's so frustrating because every doctor that I see, with the exception of my rheumatologist that diagnosed me, every doctor I see I know more about my diseases than they do. Is there a doctor somewhere in the uh, U.S. that you it would like your, your dream doctor who would actually you could go to who actually does understand uh, better than you? Um, yeah, I mean there definitely are some doctors. The Ehlers Danlos, formerly Ehlers Danlos National Foundation, now the Ehlers Danlos Society, um, funded uh, a center of excellence or, you know, like one of those things in Baltimore. Um, so there's a handful of doctors down there who are, you know, leading researchers in the field who are, you know, know it inside and out and all the different types. But when it comes down to it, I just need someone who will work with me. You know, the, the manifestations of EDS are highly variable by person, highly variable by type. Um, and it, it, we just need people who will believe us, first of all, step one. Um, and then step two, work with us based on our symptoms to help us manage our quality of life. Because that is not a priority for any of the doctors that I've seen. And that's so frustrating because that's my priority. Like, I know I'm not going to have a cure. I know that, you know, I... My quality of life as it is right now is below an acceptable level to me, and none of my doctors gave a shit, you know? And none of them were, were like, okay, let's figure out how to improve this quality of life. Um, 
I actually just talked to a palliative care doctor uh, yesterday evening, and we briefly talked about the potential for palliative care in the setting of chronic disease management, because it's more about your quality of life than it is about, um, you know, helping you pass over to the other side or, or whatever it is. Uh, people have a lot of misconceptions about palliative care. It's different than hospice care. And um, palliative care physicians are uh, adept in symptom management, and then also they generally work with kind of holistic care teams. So there's actual care coordination. There's generally a social worker, a nurse, you know, a doctor, and then they liaise with your other physicians to, you know, help you manage your condition um, and make you as comfortable as possible. And, like, that's what I need. That's what I need more than anything else, and that's – I'm not getting that, and our system is not set up for that so, at all. And the people that you're seeing, the, the doctors, their goals are to, you know, provide a service, prescribe a drug, um, do what they do, and then have you be gone and – taken care of yeah i mean i don't i i it's it's unfair of me to say that they don't give a shit um that is not fair uh but But they they have different institutional incentives that don't necessarily mean what is what is your idea of human flourishing essentially they they want to provide a you know whatever it means to to be a good employee in the hospital system yeah and you know they're dealing with a lot Our, our healthcare system is in flux right now um it's never been super great for people with chronic conditions um uh primary care doctors especially have uh really unreasonable demands placed on them generally by their employers the amount of patients that they need to see in a day and the amount of time that they get with us uh Funny enough, I actually worked for Apple in one of their retail stores for several years. And, um, you know, taking customers on an appointment basis, whether I was doing personal training or genius bar work, um, that is brutal. Having to turn someone around every 10 to 15 minutes or every 50 minutes in the case of personal training, um, that's really hard because people show up late. They have more complex problems than the time allotted. Um, and so I have, a, I, yeah, I have a, a tremendous amount of empathy for the challenges of working on an appointment basis and, you know, reimbursements from insurance companies don't match, especially for people with complex chronic conditions, don't match the amount of time that physicians need to spend with their patients. Or even if it's not spending time with their patients, researching to, you know, help them help them manage their conditions. So it's definitely not their fault and I don't fault them for it. And I, I, I do understand a lot. Uh, having friends that are doctors has helped a lot. Um, cause we can kind of like, they can talk about their experience. I can talk about my experience. It was very healing kind of for both of us to hear, uh, either side of the story. Um, but all of that being said, the way that our system is set up and the way that medical education is uh, set up and conducted is failing all of us, not just the patients, but the doctors as well, um, possibly even the insurance companies, although I don't have a tremendous amount of empathy for them, uh, or the pharmaceutical companies, although thanks for the drugs. Uh, do, you, do you have an idea for uh, this? So we're here in this uh, Stanford, you know, disruptive co-creation, yeah. uh, you know, studio, this MedEx studio. 
what would your idea for disruptive co-creation be to, uh, to fix some of these issues and kind of have a better link between doctors yeah. and patients? I mean, I think at least part of this should start with medical education and with getting students getting students FaceTime with complex patients much earlier in their training. Um, I'm talking like from year one, they should be, they should have complex patients come and talk to students. Um, I did a, uh, Columbia Medical School has a program in, narr- in a field called narrative medicine, uh, which is really the intersection of everything that I am interested in. So I did a, a week-long workshop uh, with some medical students last year. And you know, my presence there, I got feedback that um, it was really helpful for a lot of the students who conceived of chronic disease as heart disease, diabetes, and maybe chronic kidney disease, and not a whole lot beyond that. Um, you know, they they get so much about heart And, of course, heart disease and diabetes are huge issues. They affect tons of people. But one in ten Americans has, lives with a rare disease or disorder. One in two American adults live with chronic health condition. And, like, yes, plenty of those are heart disease and diabetes. But there are more people living with autoimmune disease than there are people living with heart disease and diabetes. And yet, because I th- this is an opinion that may or may not be backed by uh, evidence. But I think that because autoimmune disease disproportionately affects women and um, it, it, that's why it's really like not that big of a deal. Like no one cares, you know, that it doesn't get the, the research funding. It's not sexy. Um, you know, and, and something that I found doing my podcast is that women are systematically shut out of the healthcare system. Um, not just women, certainly people of color, you know, and, and it, these are all generalizations, but... but pe- people who are not straight white men are going to have any number of things that they don't fit the classic model of, right. of what right. medicine is designed to help. But doing my podcast, uh, to, I the diagnosis stories that I get from women versus the diagnosis stories that I get from men are pretty different. Like it took you six months to get diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. With, with extensive parental help, with extensive right. financial involvement, with right, which is going awful. through so many doctors in very, very rapid succession. Right. Yeah. And the economics of all of this is like a whole other issue so and the geography of it even, uh, you know, people in rural areas obviously don't get the care that they need. Um, but women, are routinely denied care and routinely denied their experience. And as a result, we wind up getting so much sicker before we actually get any help. And, you know, as far as rising costs of healthcare goes, there's a lot of talk uh, about preventative care, um, and that's important. But what about believing people when they tell you there's something wrong with them? Because we talk about these epidemics of heart disease and diabetes, but we don't talk about epidemics of women and people of color being denied the care that they need before I had to get so sick before anyone would take me seriously. And that is unacceptable. Um, so I think that getting, uh, patients and providers mingled in spaces that aren't just the clinical environment where we can connect on a human level 
and share in our humanity and remember that like, oh, you're just a person and I'm just a person and we're all just trying to figure this out together and we're all going to die someday. So like maybe we should talk about that while we're at it because uh, that's like a whole other thing that I'm kind of obsessed with. But um, yeah, I, I it's it's about getting people together and reminding them that we are the same. We have plenty of differences. But when it comes down to it, we're all just humans. And, like, the acronyms at the end of your last name, you know, they're important. I respect them. You spent a lot of money to get them. But uh, that doesn't discount my entire experience and my knowledge, I guess. I don't know. And I'm just thinking, like, to kind of unify that idea with, you know, the medical system as it currently is. Because I, I think most of these, you know, autoimmune disorders and or complex diseases are marked by specific markers in the bloodstream or marked by specific, right. you know, tests that can be done if the research was there to to get the patient cohort that could then, you know, isolate that specific thing and then we could design a test that could make those things yeah. easily diagnosable in the first or second doctor's visit. Yeah. And I just, so I think make people aware of all these things that this problem exists, but then the the system can bend, uh, can can stay the same to a degree, but it should bend to like uh, help these people who need, uh, you know, more you know more attention to these areas that haven't been fully covered yet. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, in the case of POTS, uh, Dysautonomia International has funded a few studies now that is showing. Uh, more of their cohorts with autoimmune markers that just weren't being tested for before. Um, muscarinic antibodies and a few other things that aren't generally part of an autoimmune panel. Um, and the, I, I, another thing that's important to note is that a lot of these tests for biomarkers have a certain you know amount of sensitivity and it depends on at what point in the progression of the disease you're testing as to whether or not they'll show up. Sjogren's is a really good example where you can test for the SSA and SSB antibodies and I think it only catches like 30 or 40 percent of Sjogren's diagnoses and definitely not for people who have had it and I think after a certain period of time they kind of disappeared. So that those tests are not helpful. There are more tests being developed, but of course, newer tests often aren't covered by insurance and are cost prohibitive. Um, like I know that this is all about getting together different stakeholders in, in medicine and providing value-based care, but when it comes down to it, I think that the fundamental flaw in our medical system is the fact that it's for profit. Um, like there's so many problems that stem it's not the only problem we have a lot of problems but there's so many problems that stem from that that um you know i i uh, think that the the future of value-based medicine is a maybe a losing a losing premise i like your idea of the 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 for disruptive co-creation was this like narrative medicine program at, at columbia is that something that's a is there like a graduate degree program in that, or is that a recurring workshop, or like yeah. what all is going on with that program? Yeah, so how would people get involved with that? Um, you can go to narrativemedicine.org, I think, is their website. Um, they offer a master's degree in it, a master's of science, which if I ever have the energy to go back to school, I might do. Um, but they do offer workshops for uh, students, medical students, and students in any health-related field. Um, every summer, they do the week-long uh, summer institute in narrative medicine, which is what I did, which 
is so worth it. It's one of the best things I've ever done. Um, and they also provide workshops uh, for practitioners. So those are way more expensive because they're for like practicing doctors who have a lot more money. Uh, and those are generally on the weekends. They do uh, one that kind of like intro to narrative medicine and then another one that is an advanced narrative medicine course. And I think a third one about narrative ethics, which don't ask me to explain what that is. Um, and I, they, there are narrative medicine programs popping up in all uh, all over the place. So uh, Sophie Davis School of Biomedical Education in New York City also has one uh, for their undergraduate medical students. I think the university, some university in Virginia has a program. Um, so this is something that's gaining traction. It's part of like the, the larger movement to incorporate the arts and humanities into medicine and medical practice. Um, that's like a larger trend that's happening. That's definitely some like what's happening in this tent here. Um, you know, so I think that there's there's something to that. You know, I, I during our, our small group sessions in that workshop all week, the medical students were talking about. Um, objectively knowing things, you know, that like objectively this and, and quantitatively that blah, blah, blah. And as a person who has a background in the arts, who went to art school, you know, like we were taught there is no such thing as objectivity. Um, and yet they are taught the exact opposite. Uh, and I think that the truth exists somewhere in between those two things. So anytime that we can like get people from discipl different disciplines mingling together and sharing ideas and creatively co-creatively disrupting things i think it's a it's a good start you know we're not going to fix our healthcare system tomorrow uh it's been broken forever basically i have talked to people all over the world uh for my podcast either on the show or just you know people who email me and you know it's not working anywhere i think it's it's really difficult to provide people with quality care, you know, especially in a larger country like the U.S. or Canada. It's, it's administratively a nightmare. And so it's been broken for a long time. It's going to take a long time to fix it. I don't know if there are any fixes, but I think that things like the narrative medicine program and things like Medicine X are a good place to start for sure. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. Like, I think I think we we nailed it. Yeah. We did nail it. Thank yeah. you. For thank you for letting me come on your podcast. Yeah, my podcast arm is tired, so thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of In Sickness and In Health. Check out the episode page for links to some of the stuff that we talk about, and you can find resources and more from us at insicknesspod.com and on social media at insicknesspod. Find Ryan and his work online at rtprior.com. And if you haven't yet, watch his documentary, Forgotten Plague, which is available on Amazon Prime, iTunes, Google Play, and DVD. And don't forget to be excellent to yourselves and each other.